Hello and welcome to OpWall's Field Notes, a podcast created by Operation Wallacea to share stories and insights from our 25 years working in the field. My name is Sophia Wood, OpWall's Country Manager for Ecuador and Director of Friends of Wallacea, and I will be your host for this series. We launched this podcast to shine a light on the world of biodiversity field research and the work of those who dedicate their lives to understanding and protecting our planet. Each month, we have conversations with scientists, community conservationists, and experienced academics about new research, protecting biodiversity, and daily life out in the field. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Kathy Slater, Opwal's research manager and senior scientist for our site in Mexico on the Yucatan Peninsula. Kathy oversees the research in the Calakmul Biosphere Reserve near Guatemala, as well as the marine site in Acumal Bay. The data from her research on the impacts of tourism on sea turtles, conducted in partnership with the Autonomous University of Mexico, helped turn Akamal into a marine protected area, which has diminished snorkelers' direct impacts on sea turtle health. She is also currently working with the Mexican government in Calakmul to monitor the forest for changes in biodiversity due to climate change or human activity. Specifically, she's using Opwal's data to help restore water sources to the traditional ecosystem to help wildlife rebound from several years of drought. Kathy's personal research focus has long been primatology, and she got her start in Mexico researching spider monkeys for her PhD. She joined her first Opwal expedition to Indonesia in 2000, then went on to run terrestrial research in Casuco National Park before eventually setting up the Mexico project in 2012. She currently advises a number of PhD students researching jaguars and more Lutz crocodiles in the park. In this episode, we discuss Kathy's decision to become a field researcher, what is happening to biodiversity in Mexico, and how data can be used to produce real conservation outcomes. Thank you, Kathy, for joining us today, and welcome to Opwal's Field Notes. All right, thank you so much for joining us today, Kathy. Since we're taping everything from home, where are you based right now? Well, I'm in my home office uh, in Tulum, uh, Mexico, where I've lived for about the last 18 years. So nice and sunny uh, at the yes. moment. Yeah. Well, <laughs> We're actually not too far away now, now that I'm in Mexico City. So, but I know. we're in the same country, but still film, still taping online, obviously. And uh, why did you choose to live in Mexico? Uh, simple, well, it's quite a random one, but the simple answer is monkeys. So I uh, I basically came out here to do my to do my PhD uh, on on spider monkeys in a reserve called Punta Laguna. Uh, which is a very random collection of events as to how that came about. Uh, prior to coming here, I didn't even know there were any monkeys in Mexico. I thought it was all kind of like big desert bandits and tequila. Uh, I didn't realise there was a whole tropical bit, uh, but obviously there is. So, yes, I came out here in uh, the beginning of 2003 and then uh, just basically didn't really want to leave. Uh, so I've been there ever since. Awesome. And um, could you tell us a bit more about the work that you do at Opwal and what inspired you to become a scientist in the first place? Oh, okay. Well, in terms of what inspired me to be a scientist, I mean, partly I was always one of those really annoying kids that wants to know the answers to everything. Do you know what I mean? Like, mom, why is the sky blue? Do you know what I mean? That kind of kid. So science was always going to be my thing because I wanted to know answers for everything. And if somebody couldn't tell me an answer, then I wasn't interested in learning it. Um, So I've always been that kind of kid. But I've also been completely obsessed with animals since very, very little. And I always either wanted to be a tiger, which then found out was not going to be possible, which was a bit of a heartbreaking conversation. Um, And if I couldn't be a tiger and live in the jungle, then I wanted to, to, to basically hang out with monkeys. 
um, which nobody thought was an actual job. <laughs> so everyone was like, well, you can work in a zoo or you can be a vet. And those are your options. Uh, and it's only as I kind of started to get very interested in things like animal behavior uh, when I was at university that I realized, oh, no, hanging out with monkeys is actually a job. Um, and so it kind of sort of stemmed from there. Um, but the work with Operation Wallacea, uh, I did my master's, master's out with them in Indonesia. And before that, I went out just as a, as a research assistant, uh, obviously very biased towards spending all my time hanging out with monkeys. But my uh, doing my PhD work, which was to do with kind of economic decisions and complex societies in spider monkeys, which is a fascinating topic. But you spend all your time hanging out with these lovely monkeys, collecting all this amazing data. And it's very, very interesting. But in the process of doing it, you realize just how threatened the habitat is and of that population of, of, of spider monkeys and how tough it is for the lives of all the people that live in the villages around this area of forest. And I didn't want to, you know, spend all my time spent ha hanging out with these animals that I love and then not do anything to actually help their situation or the situation of the people in the area. And so I, that kind of really became apparent living in an, in an indigenous mind community for two years while collecting the data. And that's why I really wanted to find my way back to Operation Wallacea in the sense that I still wanted to be able to do the kind of research that I love, but I wanted to do something inherently useful uh, in terms of helping the, the people, the communities and kind of ma sustainable management uh, of these important forest habitats. And Operation Wallacea does just that in that we have, you know, great teams of, of very excited biologists all doing biodiversity monitoring for the purpose of understanding what's happening in an ecosystem, how are, how is it being affected by climate change, for example, or by human impact. But then what we do is we don't just go, oh, OK, well, everything's bad. Bye. Deal with it. Um, what we then do is then figure out, OK, well, how can we sustainably manage this area in a better way uh, and find ways? There are ways, always ways for, for humans and nature to be able to live together in harmony. Uh, and so because that's essentially what Operation Wanna is all about, I was very keen to be able to get back into that side of things. Um, so I, having finished my PhD, I went back with Operation Monastia uh, and I've been involved in a site site in Honduras, uh, some stuff in South Africa as well, some stuff in Peru. Uh, and then from 2012 onwards, we set up the project out here in Mexico, uh, which I've been running ever since. And that's got a big project in the Calakmore Biosphere Reserve, uh, which is our huge forest site. Uh, and then our marine site uh, is uh, focused on kind of sea turtles and seagrass habitats out in Acomal. Uh, and so I'm here kind of running those those projects. Right. Well, I think your feeling about uh, being the kid who asks a lot of questions and loves animals is something a lot of us in this field can relate to. Mm, um, yeah. <laughs> and, and obviously, and obviously, you know, moving forward and wanting to do more than just the ecology side, I think is, is really interesting and obviously kind of what you're doing now at the Mexico site. So I was wondering if you could go maybe a bit more into depth on kind of what the main research questions are and the work that you're doing at our Mexico site in, in Calakmul and in Akmal. Yes, I mean, obviously, I'm a terrestrial scientist by 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 nature, and obviously, there's a lot of monkeys in Kalak Mall. But Kalak Mall is is an amazing protected area. First of all, it's massive, so it is about two million hectares of continuous forest. So, uh, for anyone listening to this coming from uh, from Britain, it, to put it in perspective, it's about the size of Wales, all of Wales, uh, with one road that goes into the middle of it and nowhere else. <laughs> um, so, it's a massive, massive expanse of forest, and it's a really important 
uh, kind of biological corridor and stronghold for a lot of species that are, are losing their habitat and not doing very well elsewhere in kind of, you know, Central America. So things like tapirs, jaguars, spider monkeys, they're all doing very well in this reserve. And the reserve itself is incredibly well managed. It's got an excellent uh, dedicated team there working alongside all the indigenous Mayan communities. Uh, so it sounds like just the most amazing place, which it is. The problem we've got is that we've been experiencing seriously prolonged droughts, which seem to be linked in with climate change. And even if it does rain, it tends to rain in dry season instead of in rainy season. It's completely unpredictable. And so we have massive problems for how the local people can kind of adapt to try and live in this changing environment uh, and huge impact on, on all of the fauna in this reserve. Because if it doesn't rain and all the water disappears, they can't survive in that reserve. And if they leave the safety of the reserve, then all the fauna are very vulnerable to, to hunting, for example. And so the reserve were in a situation where they understood that what we've been doing for years won't work anymore in terms of a management strategy. But we don't actually know what to do or, or do we need to do the same thing everywhere in this massive reserve or, or, or when they needed information. Um, and so when I was doing my PhD research out here, that was in conjunction with an amazing Mexican uh, um, NGO called Pro Natura Peninsula de Yucatan. And those guys specialize in uh, working with indigenous Mayan communities to enable them to sustainably manage their own land. And so there's a team of people that can have the right solutions for projects that can go on in communities if they know what to do, what where is most needed and, you know, what, what kind of things we're tackling. And you've got an excellent reserve management team that are very receptive to, to, to change and what they need to do. But they need the data to figure out what the hell's going on. Uh, and obviously, they've never been able to find anyone who was who could tackle such a massive place that's logistically so difficult to work in. Uh, so it worked out being a brilliant fit with Operation Monacea. Uh, and yes, we have been able to, to, to monitor how badly uh, disappearing water bodies are uh, in that reserve because of climate change. And to put it into perspective, that we're in a part of the world, we're on a big slab of limestone cast. So we don't have any rivers or streams uh, in the Yucatan Peninsula, uh, where, where Calatmon is based. In other areas, you have, these, you have these underground rivers and you have these sinkholes, which are called cenotes, where bits of cave has collapsed in. And so there's access to that underground water. But where we are in Canuck Mall is so far south, those underground rivers are about 100 metres underground. So there's no access to them for fauna or even for trees to push their roots in. So we're completely reliant on rainfall, which then basically rains and in the heavy, heavy rains, water flowing across the, the forest floor just accumulates in the in kind of the lowest lying ground. Uh, and in that area, because loads of leaf litter washes into that low lying ground with the water, that leaf litter starts to rot down. And that causes kind of a membrane, like a mucus layer that stops water from filtering through the limestone cast. So you end up with ponds or some of them actually the size of about a lake. And so these these rain filled water bodies we call locally aguadas and they are the only sources of water for people and for fauna in this region. And so if it doesn't rain, then they all start disappearing. Uh, and we nobody really realised how bad the situation was until we really started to get our data collection underway. Uh, and to give you an idea of how drastic it was, by 2018, 90% of all these water bodies had disappeared uh, in, in the wow. reserve, which is just drastic. And, and we were also able to show how badly affected the fauna were. Not all fauna, but a lot of them were. Uh, and so 
having that kind of data enabled us to actually do things about it. Because if you think about it, if you're in the middle of a biosphere reserve, it's also an UNESCO mixed world heritage site of culture and nature in the core zone of a massive wilderness area, your conservation strategy is supposed to be preservation. You're not supposed to do anything because nothing's supposed to need doing. It's a a massive protected area and it's fine just as it is. Um, But actually, we were at the stage, well, if we don't do anything, it's not going to be preserved. Everything's going to die. And that's how bad it's got. Nothing is going to survive another year of this. Um, But in order to be able to get permits to be able to do something about it and start trying to restore Aguada habitats, you, you need the data to be able to show that this is necessary. And thankfully, because we had that data, the reserve were able to get a substantial amount of emergency funding from UNESCO. Uh, The Mexican government would allow us to do these mitigating strategies that was needed uh, to basically keep everything alive. And so now we have this kind of adaptive strategy uh, of working with communities, how they can adapt what they need to do, how we can mitigate and manage this habitat to be able to cope with the changing environment. And if we weren't there and we didn't have that data and if we weren't teamed up with the right people to help us come up with the solutions, then we would never be able to achieve what's needed in that reserve. And it would be a really, really big shame to see everything just die in one of the few parts of the world where everything is doing well and is very well protected. So it's been a massive, uh, massively important project, but it's a joy to work in an area when everyone is really pulling together and you've got a really great team of local people, of the government, of NGOs, all working together for kind of a common goal. Um, so it's a it's a wonderful place uh, to spend our, spend our time. So uh, and I try to spend as much time there as possible. Yeah, it's a it's a very exciting project what you guys are working on because I think it's you know it's one of those few examples where you are able to kind of start to actually act and do something rather than holding things in, in place and, and make make it better. Um, And so obviously, I know some of the work that you've been doing is to restore the iguadas to some extent to how they were previously so that they store water more effectively. Um, So how are you undertaking that work? Well, yes. So that is obviously, again, we're talking about the core zone of a protected area. So we know we're not we can't put in like pond liner or put anything artificial or mess about with anything in the ecosystem in that way. What we were able to do is thanks to the the, the reserve management team, also um, uh, an amazing person, Rafael Reina, I'll give him and David Simmer. So Rafael Reina works for Ecosor University. He's spent many, many years studying these aguadas and undulates that use the aguadas. Uh, David Simmer, the same thing, but from the from the field protect, uh, point of view using these aguadas. And, and they were able to explain to us the, the general process of what happens in an aguada during a normal year. And so what normally happens is, so say you've just finished rainy season, so about this time of year, and your aguada is nice and full. And you're then going to go into dry season where the, the water levels are going to carry on reducing and reducing and reducing in, the, in that aguada. And as it reduces, more of your kind of semi-aquatic vegetation and reeds and stuff start, start growing in it. And those reeds are actually an important food source for some, a lot of your undulates, particularly tapir and a lot of your deer. And so what happens is that those tapir and deer start coming into the aguada and they're actually trampling around on all this vegetation, eating a lot of it, but squishing loads of it into that leaf litter and helping to maintain that important rotting uh, kind of layer of leaf litter that stops the water filtering away. And so they carry on squishing stuff into the mud and gradually it's less and less water and more and more mud. But what they've done is, is carry on mixing it up and creating this nice protective layer. 
And then the rains come again. And as soon as the rains start hitting, that aguada starts filling back with water again because it's got that protective layer that stops water filtering away. So that's your normal process throughout the course of a year of an aguada. And what we had found was that because we were monitoring Aguada water levels as well as monitoring rainfall, what we were finding was we had many years of, of not in, nowhere near enough rainfall, no proper rainy season. But then actually in the end of 2017, we did get a normal rainy season, but none of the Aguadas filled up with water again. And that's when we realised there was no longer a correlation between Aguada water levels and rainfall. Something had happened. It's like they'd lost their ability to fill with water again. And when you go to a lot of these aguadas, what has happened is they've been dry for so long, they're filled up with lots of different secondary vegetation. So non-aquatic uh, vegetation that shouldn't be in there. And they've lost that squishy, gooey, protective uh, leaf litter layer. And so what happens is when it starts raining, you just get bigger plants. It never goes back to being a water body again. And so we realised it needed a bit of a kickstart to be able to do that. So what we needed to do was mimic that, that work that the ungulates normally do to get the aguada at the end of dry season before the next rains come to be in the state it should be in to be able to fill up with water again. And so we had a lot of machete wielding uh, scientists uh, out basically clearing out uh, the vegetation that shouldn't be in there. But then if we just cleared it out and left it, it still hasn't got that rotting leaf litter layer. So that was the really fun bit where we basically ended up with sacks and sacks and sacks of leaf litter uh, and taking them down to these aguadas. Also with, with some water from water trucks if needed to be able to actually make some mud. Uh, and then we would throw all the leaf litter in and then we had hundreds of Otwell students jumping up and down and rolling around on top of all of this leaf litter uh, in mud to mimic what the ungulates would normally do. So that by the time we got to the uh, towards the end of August, just before the really heavy rain start in September, we had aguadas with this icky, you know, muddy uh, leaf litter layer at the bottom of them. Uh, and then when we did that, of course, when the rains came again, they all filled up again. And the aguadas that we didn't manipulate carried on being completely dry, filled with vegetation. And the ones that we did manipulate filled back up again. So it was it, it, by understanding how the fauna normally utilise these these water bodies, we were able to mimic that process in order to kickstart the aguadas again uh, and, and get them to fill up again without having to introduce anything artificial into those sites. Um, so it was a very cool study that we were playing about with doing these different methods and we did them in 2019. And uh, yes, we've cracked it. That method works. And so it's amazing to be able to restore water back into the middle of the, of the core zone and keep those animals in there and keep them safe. That's amazing. And what a what an interesting and unique project, obviously, of, of getting to actually kind of rebuild how the ecosystem was before. I wanted to ask you kind of what the difference is between this restoration work that you've been doing in the Aguadas and rewilding, which has become a really trendy topic in conservation. Um, and what are the results you kind of hope to see as we go forward now that you have restored the Aguadas? Mm, okay, so rewilding is, is an amazing an amazing thing when essentially what you're doing is you're allowing nature to take back over. Um, but it's normally going to be in uh, a situation where you've got cultivated land. So it's often an area where you have had farming going on. It's not a pristine habitat by any means at all. And what you're allowing is nature to come back in. So the species that should naturally be in that area, you're allowing them to take back over and restore the ecosystem to what it to what it once was. 
And the amazing benefits of doing that, things that we've learned a lot from, from the Nep Castle Estate in the UK, for example, that did 20 years of rewilding, is that when you do that, it benefits you uh, as a farmer as well, because you get your pollinating insects come back, which starts helping with that. You get all of your beetles that come back in uh, living, which helps to do with, you know, to, to control aphids and, and other pests. So you don't have to use pesticides. And understanding how nature and these ecosystem works can be incredibly beneficial, not just for conservation, but also for farming and for food food production for people so it's an amazing concept what we're doing is we are actually in a wilderness habitat we are in a pristine habitat but it's one that's that's basically being really badly affected by climate change and yes you could say well just do nothing it's part of what's going on in the world and leave things as they are but the thing is that what those animals would normally do is if you've got you know an area where the climate is changing it's drying up they would migrate south or they would migrate, uh, you know, heading down towards Belize uh, into areas where you've actually got rivers, for example. The problem is that those animals can't do that migration anymore because there's people in the way and villages and stuff. And so we've taken away the natural strategy that those animals would use to cope with these kind of, you know, prolonged droughts and, and changes in climate. So we've got to try and do something to, to, to help those animals. Otherwise, they're just going to die because they can't get to where they need to get to and migrate. And so what we were doing was basically trying to kickstart a, 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 an ecosystem to, to, to get it back to uh, uh, to be able to function again. So it's a, it's a slightly different sort of approach and it's quite specific to what we were trying to do. The reason we were, one of the reasons we needed to do it is because what we were starting to find is massive declines in a lot of our fauna. So things like our reptiles and amphibians, a lot of which actually live at these aguadas, massive uh, declines in their abundance and diversity and lots of endemic species that we only find in the, you know, in the Ixtan Peninsula were suffering particularly badly. In the case of our felids and our undulates, we were starting to see mass migrations, which is what they would normally do. The problem is that what they ended up doing was just heading out of the safety of the core zone, the reserve, and into the buffer zone, trying to get, it's almost like they, in the southeast buffer zone, almost like they know that if you go a bit further south from this, if you could get there, there's rivers and it's a much more humid climate. But they can't get there. And so they end up around the, the buffer zone of the reserve where you've got farmland. And the problem is that a lot of these undulates the more abundant ones like your deer and your your peccary, your collared peccary, uh, indigenous mine communities are legally allowed to hunt them outside of protected areas. So if those undulates wander outside the protection of the reserve, they're fairly soon going to get eaten by people. Um, if that happens, then what happens to all of the felids that have been following them, out, you know, and also migrating? And one of the big problems that you end up with is massive conflict, particularly with jaguar, because they leave the safety of the reserve, not because they particularly wanted to, but because there's no water and the undulates that they feed on have also left the reserve. Those undulates get eaten by people and you've got jags hanging around near farmland where you have got livestock farming going on. And so inevitably what happens is that the jags just stay there and go, well, I'm going to eat cows and sheep now instead. And so they end up being persecuted by farmers and you have all this you know, conflict going on with farmers and jaguars, which is not a new concept. It is a common problem in different parts of the geographical range of jaguars, but hasn't really been a problem in Calakmore because there's just so much natural prey available that jags wouldn't normally bother going anywhere near people. And so you've got this new massive problem in the buffer zone, which affects people and fauna. And it's all caused because there isn't 
enough water in the cool zone. So if you can get the water back in the cool zone, all your animals should range back into the areas and it alleviates problems for the fauna themselves and also for the people. Um, and thankfully that year, this year, this is what we've started to see, that the people around the communities aren't really seeing jags anymore. They aren't seeing these high numbers of animals hanging around their farmland. They've all gone back into the middle of the forest because the water's back. So it was a strategy for benefiting the fauna and also the, the, the communities. And this is the importance of really understanding an ecosystem to understand what is causing the problems and what you need to fix them. So if we didn't understand this dynamic of aguadas and we weren't doing this monitoring, you'd probably think, oh, we need to tackle this problem of conflict with jaguars in the buffer zone. But actually, that wasn't the problem. The problem was the lack of water in the core zone. And by solving that problem, you've now alleviated the pressure out in the buffer zone. So it's it's where science really can help conservation when you fully understand what is going on in your ecosystem and what's causing the problems and what's the best way of solving them. Uh, and so that's what we're very pleased uh, uh, to, to be achieving at this particular site. Right. I uh, know your, your work is very inspirational and obviously... You know, you talk a lot about working with the local communities and, you know, in the area where you're working, obviously, there are a lot of local people, um, as well as, you know, you mentioned right at the beginning, working with government and nonprofits that are already working there to protect Kalakmul, in particular by engaging the local community. So I guess I wanted to ask you how and why you ensure that the protection of the forest also benefits local communities. Well, okay, so there's a few things to consider. The first thing that, that if you are coming from the outside, it doesn't matter how many university degrees you've got, you need to understand that the local people that have lived in this forest for generations know that forest better than you do. So don't think that you know more than them because you don't. And so the most important thing to bear in mind is we a, we need to incorporate the local people so they can teach us because they know about this habitat. And in the particular case of Kalak Mall, these are indigenous Mayan communities who are the direct descendants of the people who built the massive city of Kalak Mall back in what, 200, between 250 BC to about you know 1000 AD. Uh, and they've lived in this forest for generations. They can identify 96% of all of the plant species in the forest are utilized by the mine communities. They have a far better understanding. And you can talk to any of the people in these communities about climate change and how things have been changing over time. And they can give you all, they know, they understand that things are changing and things are different. They just need help to be able to adapt. So the first thing is that you need to take your ego away and realise that you don't know everything and you need to understand that a lot of these local people are a wealth of knowledge that you need for your successful project. So that's the first thing, is that we engage them because we need them, not because we're trying to do favours to anybody because it won't work without them. Um, right. That's the first level. The second level to think about is that when you're talking about conservation management, what you what you're need to find a way for people to be able to live in this habitat and maintain it at the same time. People don't go around deforesting and chopping down trees because they hate trees. Like nobody does that. People are chopping down trees because they have families to feed and they either need to sell the, the sell the timber or they need to clear land to make way for agriculture because they've got they've got to earn some money and they've got to feed themselves. And so Absolutely. what you so conservation only works when you can figure out, okay. How can we find ways for these people to earn money out the forest and have all the food that they need to eat, but they don't actually have to chop down the forest at the same time? And that's when what, what, the only way that conservation works. And if we didn't do that and all we did was biodiversity monitoring, you're, all you're going to do is monitor the, the monitor the decline of a fantastic place. 
that doesn't help anybody, does it? So it's got to be always in collaboration uh, with your local communities to learn from them and to work with them to be able to find uh, sustainable solutions. And they can be from a variety of things. You generally want to do as many different things as possible rather than putting all your eggs in one basket. So Yes, we have been uh, with Pronatura Peninsula of Yucatan, our partners. This is their area of expertise. So, again, we learn from them. We're the biologists that do the monitoring to understand the ecosystems and, and what needs to be done. Those are the guys that have all of these different solutions from training up local people to be able to work as specialist uh, tour guides, uh, which becomes a very nice uh, uh, source of income. They're all certified by the Mexican government. So that's one angle. More sustainable forms uh, of agriculture. Uh, honey production is the big one that's worked brilliantly uh, in Calakmon. And again, that's understanding your history. What was the major source of income that the ancient Mayans had from that forest was honey production. Honey was what they traded with everybody. Uh, and so we've got all these amazing native bees. And what do they feed on? Flowers from the trees in the forest. So you can earn money out of that forest just by basically having using the bees that already live there, feeding on the flowers from the trees that already live there. And in a world where, you know, bees are not doing very well everywhere else in the world, but brilliantly in Calak Mall, they're now the, one of the largest producers of honey in the world. Uh, and this is all 100% sustainable. It's organic, certified organic, and you don't have to chop down any trees at all to do that. And so, again, understanding how, you know, your, your history, the, 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 mind, the mind communities and finding out ways of, of generating different income. Um, aloe vera production is another one. The body shop actually buys uh, all their products that have aloe vera in them come from uh, indigenous communities where women's groups are actually far, uh, uh, farming uh, aloe vera around their, around their houses in their gardens. And that's an extra top up source of income. So lots of different projects and different ways of managing things. At the same time, the people who manage the reserve, they are the ones who understand about the different land use, about land rights, about what the reserve is actually needed, the you know vigilance management. And so if you don't work alongside them either, you're going to do a project that sounds wonderful, but isn't necessarily the most useful. Um, <clears throat> and the advantage that we had is that Pronatura already worked very closely with CONAMP, which is the Government Department for Protected Areas that manages that reserve. And so we asked them, what do you need? If we do a project here, what's what's what what is necessary? And it was those that the guys who said we are so worried about what's going on with these aguadas and these water bodies. We we can't get to all of them to monitor them. The area is too big, but we think it's bad. We just don't know how bad it is. And so if we hadn't approached them first to find out what they needed, we may not have actually made that the focus of our monitoring project, in which case our monitoring project wouldn't have necessarily been that useful. So it's a case of understanding what it is you know and what it is you don't know and who can answer the questions that you can't answer and get yourself a team together that collectively can do a really successful conservation project. And so the success that we've had in Calatmore would not have happened if it was just Operation Wallacea. All we would have been able to do is monitor the decline of things and not really understand it. But teaming up with the reserve management team and with Pronatura, now we've got a project that actually dynamically works. And so and also with all the, the, the communities as well. So it has to be a big collaborative effort of everybody working together to find sustainable long term solutions at work. And the good news is that those solutions do exist. That's the great thing about conservation is that it's not just about, oh, everything in the world is horrible and it's a mess and, you know, we've got to try and do something. There are solutions. You've just got to work together as a team to be able to actually make them work. 
I think that's a fantastic point about looking for local partners, obviously working with the local communities and looking for people to fill different skills gaps. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not something that every conservationist or every conservation organization necessarily knows how to do effectively. I think the example, obviously, of what's been able to be done in Kalakmul by having these partnerships is a great example of how that can work really well. Changing the topic a little bit, this year, every field researcher, pretty much every field researcher on Earth has seen international projects interrupted. What are the potential implications of this gap in data for biodiversity and protecting areas like Kalakmul? Well, uh, I mean, at Kalakmul, we've had a very specific situation is that after about kind of about 10 years of kind of prolonged droughts, 2020, just as kind of sticking with the general theme of the apocalypse that went on in 2020, we had about 10 years worth of rain in in six weeks. We had six tropical storms all hit the reserve at once and then rainy season happened. So uh, we went from complete and utter kind of drought and desperation to extensive flooding. Now, from the point of view of the fauna, you think, oh, yay. But if, if you have extensive flooding, you st- farming and agriculture still isn't going to work. It's not been better for the communities. It's just been one extreme rather than another extreme. Um, and so not being able to be there, A, is not being able to help the communities coping with a different climate change drama of excessive ridiculous rain. So you still can't grow any crops. Um, And we haven't been able to monitor how well fauna has been bouncing back or adapting and and what, you know, have we getting huge amounts of fauna migrating back up from Guatemala, from Belize, for example, into the reserves. We have a big gap in our in our monitoring data uh, and it would have been glorious to be able to to be there collecting that uh, from the point of view of our biologists but also really needed from the point of view of the communities to sort of say, well, because things like, for example, the honey production, the bees just stop producing honey if you get ridiculous amounts of rain. And so now we're realising, oh, we're thinking we've solved all the problems because we keep dealing with not enough rain. But did we have any strategies in place for too much rain? No. And so now we need to figure out how we're going to deal with that side of things with the the communities. And so it was a, a big blow to not be able to be there. Uh, for 2020 uh, to be able to deal with a completely different type of extreme. I mean, obviously, there's not been tourism and stuff going on because of the the pandemic. And in the case of our marine site in Akamal, oh, I'm desperate to see how nicely all of that ecosystem has started to recover without, you know, hotels filled with people along the coastline uh, and all the general contaminants that goes with kind of coastal based tourism. But in the case of Calatmore, we don't really have that many tourists anyway. So it's not been a major impact in that sense. It's more just been that we've had this crazy rain situation that we haven't been able to monitor or deal with. So, so yeah, we're quite desperate to get back into the field. And now we need to work on some new strategies for kind of extreme climate events one way or the other, rather than just focusing on dealing with it with, uh, with prolonged drought. So you can never really stand still in, in conservation. No, I guess. no it seems the second not. you think you have it right, everything goes the opposite direction. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so yeah, so it's a case. Yeah, we need to get back there and 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 start working on. Yeah, what what do we do in the years when you get too much rain, which we never thought was going to be an issue, but apparently yes. So so yeah, a lot of work still needs to be done. Of course, and um, I guess. I don't want to ask because I think all of us miss it a little bit, but uh, what's your favorite part of working in the field? And maybe what are some of the biggest challenges that come up while you are working in the field? 
Well, my favourite part of working in the field, as you probably guessed, is monkeys, uh, in the sense that I've talked about all the conservation uh, kind of goals of what we're achieving with this project, but I do still get to run around with our habituated troop of, of monkeys uh, that actually live at an unexcavated ruin site. So it's quite Indiana Jones-tastic running around through these unexcavated ruins with, with the monkeys. Uh, and if you've ever spent, if anyone's ever spent any time with spider monkeys, you will know they are absolutely hilarious they're all action monkeys something ridiculous is going to happen you know within every kind of few minutes um and particularly the the males always stay in the group in which they're born uh, and so there's a lot of males now there that kind of think we're like a bit of their extended family because we've always been hanging around ever since they've existed uh, and so those guys do get very very close to us indeed and we can recognize them or they've all got names so that's my joy is hanging out with those guys uh, which is wonderful when they're kind of around their sleep trees at the ruin site. And then they, they when they move, they move really, really quickly. So it's a case of running through the forest, deliberately not look at, looking at where you're going because you're looking up at the monkeys. So falling over in dramatic style <laughs> happens a lot. Um, uh, but it's all part and parcel and the, and the fun of, of dealing with that project. Um, the challenges of working in the field were, well, thankfully, I, I have Caroline Acton, who's like my colleague who deals with all the complicated stuff. She's our logistics manager and she's one of those people that's just un flappable I swear you could set Caroline on fire and she'd just you know casually put it out like <laughs> poor she's Caroline just, yeah <laughs> she's an amazing person to work with but while I'm playing with animals and having a lovely time Caroline's the one actually making it all work behind the scenes so I, I would like to say that I have massive challenges to deal with in the field but actually Caroline does that bit for me so thanks Caroline I love you um but um, yes, major challenges. Um, I mean, obviously, it's it's a complicated uh, expeditions to coordinate, but we've got a fantastic team that that deals with all of that. So, so, uh, so yes, um, I can't really claim that I personally have massive challenges to deal with in the field, other than maybe it's all not monkeys having... and fun for you. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Basically, that's my experiences in the summer. Yes, and. <laughs> And is there any particular reason that the monkeys that you follow hang out near the ruins? Oh, yes. So it's uh, it, it's exciting uh, in that one of the other really cool things about Kalak Mall is that this forest has always been manipulated by people. So it's a very rare situation that um, that basically for as long as the forest has existed, there have been, well, the, the, the ancient Maya, but also prior to then the Olmecs and, and, and other uh, kind of uh, indigenous uh, tribes and stuff. And so what you've got in the forest now is wherever you've got ruin sites. So we talk about Kalak Mall and the big Kalak Mall ruins, which once housed 50,000 people, but that was like the capital city. Wow of a whole kingdom. And so, so far that they found, and they keep finding more, there's 1,438 ruin sites in the Calatmore Biosphere Reserve. And around each of these ruin sites, what you find is these areas of manipulated forest. And so the ancient mines were experts at, at agroforestry. And so they used to cultivate a native tree species, but they would cultivate them. So they would be irrigated uh, and there would be much unusually high density of particular uh, tree species. Uh, so trees for fruit production as a source of food. But a lot of the trees, they were actually growing them to extract the resins and the saps and the dyes. Um, but they also happened to be fruiting trees. And so those these areas of what were once kind of orchards 
you've got very high density of fruiting trees that are massively bigger than all of the other trees. And so what you find is your frugivores, so things like your primates or large frugivorous birds, for example, frugivorous bats, they all hang out at these ruin sites. Not because they're little budding archaeologists, it's because they're feeding on this very special type of forest that's been created by the ancient Mayans. And then similarly, the ancient Mayans had their areas of honey production. Uh, and so obviously what they've done is cultivated the native tree species that produce uh, flowers uh, for the, that the bees like. And they took this to the next level because they'd not only worked out which flowers had the highest sucrose concentration, which meant that when the bees feed on those flowers, their honey is sweeter. They'd also discovered that of one particular native tree species, the Chichen, when the bees feed on the flowers of that tree species, it's got a special enzyme in it that means that the honey that the bees produce doesn't crystallize. So the Mayans managed to work out how to make ridiculously sweet honey with an endless shelf life. Um, and so that's that amazing. Is, isn't it amazing? But when you go into those bits of the forest, obviously that's where all of your insectivores, where all of your nectivores are because of all the flowers uh, in those particular areas. And so it's really cool that you have this, this, it's not a normal forest in any way. And it's really interesting to be in a place where humans made a habitat better, which doesn't normally happen, does it? Um, but the ancient minds, the reason we have the biodiversity in this reserve is because of the ancient minds, not in spite of them. And that's the reason why it's got that dual award from UNESCO. It's a mixed world heritage site of culture and nature because you wouldn't have one without the other. Um, and so that's what makes it a very exciting place to, to work in when you start understanding these dynamics of which particular species hang out in which particular parts uh, of the forest. But that's why there's always going to be monkeys at ruin sites because of the special uh, kind of remnants of these 2000 year old orchards that are adjacent to them, which is super that's fascinating. That's so cool. You make me very much want to visit and I hope we've convinced a yes. few more people to visit also. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, obviously, you know, you've talked about the, the crazy biodiversity of this area where you're working in Kalak Mool. What's the what's the craziest or coolest thing you've seen while working there? Oh, yes. Yeah, this is one of my, uh, yes, this was a particularly ex special experience. I, I had the most amazing walk through the forest but I was actually only not even a hundred meters I walked uh, but this was a few years ago I think it was about 2016 I think and uh, the BBC uh, we just we just arrived in the reserve uh, they were there with us because they were doing some filming for their Mexico uh, documentary and they just arrived and it was the afternoon and uh, my um, our, our study group of monkeys is not that far from our main research camp so I said to them hey I'm going to go and say hi to my monkeys I was like does anyone want to come uh, and all the guys from the BBC were like no actually we've got to sort out our cameras and blah 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 so we'll just kind of leave it to it I was like oh, okay fair enough um and so I went down drove down to to this particular area and I walked through the for the forest I saw kind of all of my monkeys so I saw about 50 monkeys or something as I was walking through I saw a head of kind of peccary I saw some mosaic turkeys I saw toucans uh and then I saw um a deer that was basically feeding it was actually an artificial water trough that we put in where there should have been an aguada so that there was a source of drinking water in an area where animals normally expect there to be water. And so anyway, I saw this deer and it was basically drinking from the water. And so I thought, oh, well, I'll sit down and watch that. And so I started backing away. So I wasn't looking where I was going. I was backing away, walking up the slight banks um, toward the edges of this, this dry aguada so I could sit down and observe this deer. And I kind of was stepping backwards and I sort of plunked, my, plunked myself down in the forest to sort of sit down. And as I sat down, I heard this kind of... Like noise and I thought 
what's that? And I looked to my left and I'd literally walked backwards and sat down about five metres away from a male jaguar who was also watching the deer, presumably getting ready to kind of eat it. And we had this amazing experience where the jaguar just kind of looked at me with this like really condescending look on its face to kind of be like, yeah, thanks, mate. <laughs> you just ruined that for me. Uh, and so we just kind of looked at each other for a bit and I was like, hi, sorry. Um, and oh then, what fe- then what felt like half an hour of sitting five metres away from a jaguar, in reality, it was probably about 30 seconds. Then um, the jag just kind of went, right, OK, well, that's all over then. And just kind of like casually got up and just wandered away. Um, and so that was my most amazing experience in the forest ever. Uh, and like I said, I didn't even walk 100 metres. Um, so that was that was a really special, special uh, event for me. The bee I did get that same jag on camera later on, but they didn't. Oh, good. Next to him. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I think that's the best. I think that's the best field research story I've heard. And obviously, you know, I think these these stories are the reasons we we all come keep coming back to the yeah. rainforest because you just never know when that's going to happen. It might no. be years between them, and then all of a sudden you get these crazy experiences. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I was lucky enough to see a jaguar in person in 2019 in, in Ecuador, and that was, and it wasn't nearly as close as yours. So I can't I can't even imagine. I think I would have been terrified. Um, but you know what? It's a really weird. I had this overwhelming desire to just launch myself at it and cuddle it, which is ridiculous. <laughs> so yeah, you'd Black think there would be, you'd think there would be fear there, and none whatsoever. All that was in my head was you're so fluffy, and I just wanted to cuddle it. So uh, obviously, I didn't try that. Probably wouldn't have gone down well. Uh, but yes, yeah, surprisingly, no, there was no fear there. Just an overwhelming desire to cuddle it because it was just so beautiful. Um, but yes, one of the cool things about being in a reserve where you don't really have people or hunting going on and so animals that would normally be very wary of you aren't um which is a very cool place uh to be indeed but yeah that was very special uh uh, experience with that particular jag yeah that's amazing well to to end on on more of a pot on a very positive note obviously this story is pretty positive anyway (laughs) but um why, why do you believe that we should keep fighting for biodiversity and preventing climate change? Kind of what gets you out of bed in the morning? <laughs> well, I think what gets me out of bed in the morning is a cup of coffee and monkeys, uh, generally. Uh, and if there's no monkeys involved, then I'm not so good at getting up in the morning, I've got to be honest. Um, but in terms of, <laughs> of why should we why should we be fighting against uh, climate, well, battling with climate change? The simple reason is that we already have the solutions to the problems that exist. They already exist, the solutions. The problems are that not everybody's doing them because not everybody is convinced that it's necessarily as urgent as it is, or maybe some people are feeling it's almost a bit of a hopeless case. And I'm telling you now, it really isn't. There are always ways to adapt to be able to cope with these kind of changing environments, as long as we all work together as a team. And so it's a case of, you know, acting now uh, and, and and actually getting things done when we know that there are solutions and they will work. And this is where really uh, kind of, you know, the, particularly the younger generations coming through that are just so good on social media, whereas I kind of struggle with the concept of a mobile phone, um, is the fact that if you think about it, the scientific, this is one example that said plastics in the ocean. The scientific community knew, have known about that since the mid 70s. Did we achieve anything on, on getting that changed? Not really. 
David Attenborough, 10 minutes on the TV at the end of Planet Earth, in, of, of, of Blue Planet Earth 2, talking about it. And then policy changed on a global scale in less than a year. And so and people are now on these massive cleanup missions. So the point is that as long as everybody knows what they need to do, people will do it. People will work together. We can solve these things. We've just got to actually start doing it. And that's why we need people to be raising awareness, not of how bad everything is, but how bad everything is. And this is how we solve it. Uh, and so that because sometimes people turn off to a very negative message. And it, it is indeed negative. I'm not trying to say that everything in the world is fine. What I'm trying to say is it's not fine, but we can do things about it. And so we need more people getting involved in raising awareness and more people getting involved in getting policy changed. That's the, that's the next level. It's not just that you know people like us doing these kind of projects. We need governments to start changing the way that we run countries and changing the way that we do things. Uh, and so that the hope is that more and more awareness is actually going to start uh, filtering through and pressurising governments to make change. But just that one example will show you just how quickly legislation can change if you can get all the right people to listen at once. And so that's why I, we do need to carry on raising awareness and fighting because it isn't a losing battle. There are solutions. We just got to actually do them and do them now, basically. I, I love that. Um, I mean, I, I think we need to take a much more positive spin on how we talk about these things, which is part of why we're making this podcast and all the newsletter and everything else so that we can talk about people who are taking action uh, mm -hmm. and action that looks like things that we, you know, you and I and other people can do. Do you have any advice for people who are maybe starting out a conservation career or even advice that you would have liked to give yourself when you were younger? Um, I would say I was very lucky. I was very lucky in that I got, well, I had excellent supervisors for my PhD, but I was very lucky that I got a lot of really excellent conservation type advice from, from Maria Andrade, who is the director of Pro Natura, Peninsula Yucatan. Uh, so, so I was very, very lucky that I got exceptionally good advice from, from the start, uh, from someone who's lived and worked in an area for many, many years. And so I think my advice would be to know your own limits and understand what you don't know and understand that there are other people out there that know more than you and so you need to work with them and so it's going back to that point of understanding that there is so much to learn from indigenous local communities there's so much to learn from other NGOs and figure out what what is it that you're good at doing and that you can do and what are the things you're not good at and who is good at doing those other things so as a team you can actually get something sorted and to listen to, to people who live and work in these areas for longer than you to find out what's actually needed and then kind of work alongside them and so that would be my big advice really is to listen and collaborate because that's the only way that conservation projects are really actually going to be successful and actually work in the long term. I think that's great advice both looking for it sounds like partnership and mentorship mm -hmm. um, especially when you're starting out and honestly probably good advice for almost any career not just conservation but obviously particularly important when you're working in these areas of land that communities have lived in for thousands of years. Well, I just have one more question. I think I know the answer, but I'll ask anyway. <laughs> what are you most looking forward to for their next field season? 
monkeys <laughs> yeah you did know the answer uh yeah i'm desperate to get i'm desperate to get back to go and see my babies um but obviously we are i'm desperate to see because it's, it's going to be a happy happy field season this is now rather than a reserve on the brink of everything dying we're on a reserve that's now full of water again so i am so excited to see how well everything is bouncing back uh and kind of which species you know, our recovery rates of things. So certainly this this coming field season is going to be a happy, happy, happy field season about recovery uh, rather than decline. Uh, so yes, it's going to be super exciting. I'm really, really, really looking forward to it. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Kathy, and your insights about all the work that you've been doing. It's It's really inspiring and exciting to hear a story where things are trending positively. I think that's pretty rare in conservation these days. Um, so I, I look forward to sharing this and I look forward to seeing the data from this year in Colic Mool and, mm. and how things have improved since since the Aguadas have come together. Yes. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to Opwell's Field Notes. We hope you enjoyed hearing about Kathy's work to restore Colic Mool to its former glory and ensure local communities are empowered to support conservation. Stay tuned for more episodes about conservation and other biodiversity hotspots around the world coming soon on Opwall's Field Notes.